Scripture text for this evening's message is Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Before I pray and seek the Lord's help, while I have the whole church in front of me, including those at the other campuses, I want to thank you for your prayer and support during the last four weeks on the writing leave. I don't take for granted that the elders give me that gift. It is gracious, and I receive it as an undeserved benefit. And thank you for your prayers and for supporting the church while I'm away. But it's good to be back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it as a gift, why do we boast as though it were not a gift? So humble us before your word and make us docile and teachable, soft, tender, touchable by the word of God. Help me to be faithful to it and may it take its root in our lives. And if any is in these services not yet born again, would you draw near by your Holy Spirit and raise them from spiritual death and give them faith and love for Christ? In his name we pray. Amen. What I would like to do in this message is three things. First, explain the series that's beginning and where we're going and why we're doing it. Number two, probe into Psalm 1 and get some of its riches. And then third, illustrate at least one of the ways that Psalm 1 leads us to Jesus Christ, our Savior. The name of the series, as you can see in the worship folder, is Thinking and Feeling with God, Part 1. There will be, Lord willing, Six parts, thinking and feeling with God. So what I want to do first is uh, make three observations about the Psalms in general, which explain why the series and why the title, Thinking and Feeling with God. Observation number one, the Psalms are meant to be instruction from God 
about God, about man, about life. Underline the word instruction. When we read the Psalms, we are meant to learn things about God and about human nature and about how life is to be lived. Some poetry makes no claim to instruct. Not the Psalms. The Psalms are instruction and they are poetry. They mean to teach. One of the pointers for this claim, and there are lots of pointers, not the least of which is the doctrinal use made of the Psalms in the New Testament by Jesus himself about his own deity and other great truths, but we'll leave that aside for the time being. The evidence here that I'm going to point to for this claim is that Psalm 1 is positioned as the introduction to the entire 150 psalms intentionally with the words, verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. And the word Torah, that's the Hebrew word, Torah, here's a little footnote in the ESV, in its broadest ordinary meaning is instruction, not just legal ordinance. Legal ordinance is one subset of meanings for the word Torah or law, but here my guess is it has a double meaning that you'll see why in just a moment. So translate it like this, Right at the beginning of these 150 Psalms, his delight is in the instruction of the Lord, and on this instruction he meditates day and night. So there's a signal given, I'm doing some instruction here. These psalmists have some truth to impart. Learn this. That's my first clue. Now add to that, the Psalms are structured in five books. Did you ever notice this? Get to the end of chapter 41, there's a break and a heading and a special kind of little doxology. And you get to the end of chapter 73, there's a break, a little special doxology. You get to the end of chapter 90, and there's a break and a little special doxology and 107. There are five collections in the 150 Psalms. Why? From the beginning, Jewish Midrash, and ever since then, scholars have agreed, by and large, this is an intention to show that there's a, a mental parallel to the five books of Moses, the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are the Torah, the law. And then as the Psalms are being gathered for the people of God and put together, God leads them, I believe, to gather them into five sections and then begin them with meditate on the law day and night. So all of that leads me to say that that word there, blessed is the man who delights in the law, and meditates on it, it means the Psalms. Blessed is the man who 
meditates on the instruction in these five gatherings of Torah or instruction. When the Psalms are read the way they're supposed to be read, we learn from them. We're told here to meditate on them day and night. That's observation number one. The Psalms are to be read as instruction, and we're to learn from God about ourselves, about Him, about life. Observation number two. The Psalms are poems. They are songs. That's what the word psalm means. They are songs. They were sung, and they are poetry, written in Hebrew poetic form, mainly parallelism. And the point of that observation is this. Poetry and songs, music, exist to stir up and express emotion. That's why it exists. If that weren't the point, there'd only be prose. The only reason anybody does something kind of weird with language called poetry is because they want something else to happen. They want something to happen when they say this. Or the only reason we sing and don't just stand here talking to each other is because we want something else to happen. We don't just want to inform each other of ideas, right? It's not the point of getting together, just informing each other of more accurate ideas. We sing and we write poetry and we do that sort of thing because we know we have another huge aspect to our being called a heart or a emotion or affections. Or, and we are to be deeply affected there and shaped there by Psalms. If you read the Psalms just for doctrine, you're not reading them the way they were meant to be read. They are songs. They are poetry. They are musical. You see musical terms strewn throughout the Psalms. They're meant to move us, not just inform us. They're meant to alter our emotions, help our emotions, guide our emotions, shape our emotions. One of the reasons that Christians love the Psalms, I've heard my wife say it's her favorite book in the Bible. One of the reasons people say that is because the Psalms touch on so many emotions. You can always find yourself in the Psalms. I don't care what you're dealing with. You're always there. Let me give you just 24 examples, okay? <laughs> It'll only take two minutes, minute and a half. Loneliness. I am lonely and afflicted. These are quotes from the Psalms. I won't give you the reference. You can look at them later. Love. I love you, O Lord. All. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. Sorrow. For my life is spent with sorrow. Regret. I am sorry for my sin. Contrition. 
a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Discouragement and turmoil of soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Shame, shame has covered my face. Exultation in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. Marveling. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Joy. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Gladness. I will be glad and exult in you. Fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Anger. Be angry and do not sin. Peace. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. Grief. My eye wastes away because of grief. Desire, O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Hope, let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Brokenheartedness, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Gratitude, I will thank you in the great congregation. Zeal, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Pain, I am afflicted and in pain. Confidence, Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The Psalms, more intentionally than any book in the Bible, is designed to carry, express, and shape our emotions. Give vent to them, all of them, and shape them, and rein them in, and free them up, and explode them, and kill them where they should be killed. It is an amazing gift to the church. So, observation number two is the Psalms are songs and poems, and Psalms and poems and songs exist because something more should happen to us than doctrinal refinement. Observation number three. The Psalms are inspired by God. They are not merely the word of man to God. They are the word of God to man even when they are the word of man to God. There are several reasons why we believe this. Here is one. Maybe the most important. Jesus believed it with all of his heart. I'll give you three reasons why I think that. He quoted his favorite psalm, evidently, judging by the frequency of his quotes, was Psalm 110. And he quoted it like this, and listen carefully to the way he does it. This is Mark twelve thirty six. Jesus said, David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now the psalm doesn't say David said that by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that. He said it because that's what he believes about the Bible. 
the Old Testament. It's what he believes about the Psalms. When the Psalms open their mouth, God opens his mouth. Or Jesus quoted in John 10:35 Psalm 82 verse 6 and said, "The scripture cannot be broken." Or Jesus quoted Psalm 41 verse 9 in chapter 13 verse 18 of John and said, the scripture will be fulfilled. My king, infallible son of God, believes that the Psalms come true. He believes that they are by the Holy Spirit. They are inspired by God. Which is why the heading of this series goes like this. Thinking, observation number one, and feeling, observation number two, with God, observation number three. You got it now? Thinking, these psalms teach the mind. Feeling, these are more than thinking. These are poems, songs to awaken and carry our whole being of emotion. Godward and manward with God. These are not mere human thinkings and feelings. We are doing this with God. What man expresses here, God expresses for his purposes. When we read and sing and recite, we are reading God's Word. Now, why this series now? Answer. We just finished a 15-part series on the new birth. How are you born again? What does it mean to be born again? So here we are. What would you do next if you were pastor? What would you think? And here's the way my mind has worked. It's, it's only six weeks. When babies are born, they are quite helpless, and they cannot live on their own, and they are, are really alive, and they're really ready to grow, usually. And they need food, and they need drink, and, and they need to mature. That's the way all of us are. All of us. When you're born again, you're just immature, imperfect. Flawed thinking, flawed feeling. 62, still flawed thinker, flawed feeler. What do you do now? You grope as a, a newborn towards some help. How do, how do I get grown up? How does my thinking get fixed after years of being so flawed? And how does my emotion, these, this anger and this lust and this regret, and all this turmoil inside of me that I brought to the faith get fixed or shaped? And the answer that I'm commending to you is meditate on the Psalms day and night. 
and you will become like a, a tree, not chaff, like a tree. So it seems timely to me that we... What I want to happen is, for some of you, I would like to jumpstart this habit. It may not exist at all. For most of you, it exists. You love the Psalms. You, you, nothing I've said so far is news to you. You're there, and I just want to help us get better at it. I want us to learn how to live the Psalms, feel the Psalms, think the Psalms, be shaped in our thinking and shaped in our emotions by the Psalms. That's what I'm doing for six weeks, just kind of modeling for you. What do you do? How do you do this? How do they work? If that's what they're supposed to do, teach us and awaken us and shape us, how does it work? And that's where we're, where we're going. So now we're going to Psalm 1, for starters, to see everything I've said so far confirmed. This psalm deserves three sermons, at least, maybe three series of sermons if you're a Puritan. But I'm going to give it one sermon and we'll cover three verses. And here's the way I want to do it. Um, I have two observations to make in order to draw out some really precious things for us. And then we'll close with how does it lead us to Jesus? Observation number one in Psalm 1. Um, or que- Let me do it with questions. I, I get to the observation, but I'm, I'm leading to the observation with a question. Why does Psalm the psalmist begin the way he does in verse 1. Why does he begin like this? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Why does he begin like that? Instead of saying, more simply, don't be wicked, don't sin, and don't scoff. We just cut to the chase. Don't do that. Why does he begin this way? Here's the answer, I think. The reason is because the contrast that he wants to draw in the next verse is not a contrast between wickedness and righteousness. It's a contrast between being influenced by one set of influences versus being influenced by another set of influences. That's the contrast. He's contrasting being shaped one way versus being shaped another way as a human being. Being shaped in our thinking and feeling by the wicked, the sinner and the scoffer, or being shaped in our thinking and feeling by the instruction of the Lord. So the focus here is not, don't be wicked, be righteous. That's not the point. That's a good idea. It's just not the point. The point is, in life, we're faced by multiple shaping influences. Wicked, sinner, scoffer, all kinds of bad attitudes and bad behaviors on the television, on the internet, on the billboards, 
in the neighborhood, just bad everywhere. Or you can be shaped by the Word of God. Verse 2, but, here's the contrast with walking, standing, sitting with bad influences, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, this is worth a lot of thought. Jumping from walking, standing, sitting to delighting calls for some reflection. <laughs> Pretty serious reflection. Nobody is wicked out of duty. Nobody is sinning out of duty. Nobody scoffs out of duty. Why do they do it? They want to. It feels good to do it. It's pleasure. It's delight. That's why they do it. Why we do it. Why wouldn't you then contrast that delight with the other delight? And I presume since the way this delight is cultivated is by meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, the other delight happens that way too. What do you look at? What do you dwell with? What do you think about? The wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer are just so interesting. We look at them, we think about them, we watch them until we want it. And it's desirable. People look at the Bible, they don't get drawn to the Bible. How, how drawn are you to the Bible? How drawn are you to linger in the Psalms in the morning? And how quick are you to the Internet? And quick are you to the newspaper? And quick are you to the radio and the television and whatever? Delight comes from significant beholding, looking, thinking, meditating, lingering. That's where it comes in the world. That's where it comes from the, from the scriptures. So the contrast, my answer to the first question, why did he begin, verse 1, the way he began it? Don't walk in that council. Don't stand with those sinners, to sit with those scoffers. The contrast is, have another delight. Have another preoccupation. This is a summons. And this, is, this is what I hope God does in the next six weeks. I hope by the end of the next six weeks, the tide of this church's love affair with the Psalms and Delight in the Psalms and commitment to meditate on the Psalms will have gone up so that all the boats are rising. Because we're at a pretty low level. We did a survey a long time ago 
of the amount of time spent in the Word in this church, I was absolutely tempted to quit. I, I have been unwilling to take the survey since then. It was so discouraging. <laughs> so I don't know where you are. I just know once upon a time it was bleak. A minute here, a minute there. Every other day or three or week. And I thought, no wonder. You can't live. You can't live. You can't. You're going to be chaff-like. Not tree-like. Fruit-like. Green, shady, leaf-like. Overhurting people-like. If you're not meditating on the Psalms. Day and night. Day and night. What do you do when you wake up at 4 a.m. and there's a panic over you? Or you feel rotten and guilty about something you said or you're terrified of something that's coming or you can't explain anything. What do you do? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. You're not talking out loud because your wife is asleep here. But you're doing it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. God is our refuge and strength, the very present time and help. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence my help come. My help comes from the Lord. What do you do at 4 a.m.? There is no other way to fight for faith and keep it and be a tree than to meditate on the instruction of the Lord day and night. That's question number one. Here's number two. Why doesn't verse three say, now that you've meditated on the instruction of God day and night. You will not act wickedly. You won't act sinfully. And you will not scoff. So, you know, wouldn't that be a nice closure? Again, start in verse 1. Don't do that. Uh, go to the alternative influence of the Word so that a new heart of delight is awakened by meditating on more magnificent things than the world can offer. And you come out to close the, the verse 1 with, Now don't do that wickedness. Why, why doesn't he do it that way? That's probably the way I would have done it. And he doesn't do it that way. The answer, I think is because he has something incredibly profound to teach about the way, may I say, the Christian life is lived. He draws attention to the fact that um, we are like trees bearing fruit, not laborers picking fruit. To use Paul's language, the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the law. Where he goes in verse 3, let's read it. He is like, who is he talking about? The one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night and finds his delight in the 
truth of God and man and life revealed through the instruction of God. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. In its season, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It is absolutely essential that we understand that the Christian life is fruit-bearing, not fruit-picking. We're not laborers. We're trees. We have roots down by rivers. Our life It's coming from a river. It's coming from streams. It's coming up and fruit is happening as we live by the river. It's just a way to fight. You don't fight legalistically. You don't make your list and say, okay, wicked, no. Sin, no. Scoffer, no. Keep the list. It's in my pocket. I get it out when I'm tempted. That's not the way it works. Verse 3 says, the way it works is when you go to the Word and you see God spread out there before you and all His ways and works and faithfulness, it's like sending your roots down into a stream and life comes up. And you're shaped in your thinking and your feeling and fruit comes out. And If it's not coming out, you don't pluck yourself up and start walking around going to the fruit store. You just say, what's wrong? There's a river down there. This is not mechanical and it's not automatic. The way roots and water in this stream work is not automatic. The connection between my root system and God's stream of life-giving truth in the Psalms is meditation. Learning how to do this, learning how to linger over Psalm 23. Almost everybody knows Psalm 23. To linger over this, pray over this, immerse yourself in this, wrap this thing around your head. Don't let go of it like Jacob and the angel until it blesses you, changes you, affects you in the morning. Don't just, okay, I read my Bible. What's that? The devil knows the Bible by heart. He used it on Jesus. It's lingering there, loving this, pleading with the Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Unite my heart to feel your name, fear your name. Incline my heart to your testimony. Shape me, make me, delight me, satisfy me. I won't let you go until I'm changed. Here, open my eyes, oh God. That's connecting with the water. That's where the battle is fought. I must have an alternative set of delights or I will be a chaff leaf in the wind of the wicked, just blowing wherever they want me to go. This little thing on the Internet will capture me and this little thing on television will capture me and this little thing in the bank will capture me and I'll just... 
The battle is at the level of our emotions. The root system must touch the life-giving, joy-giving water. Let me close like this. What about Jesus? I'm a Christian pastor. I'm not a Jewish pastor. I am a true Jew. I am a child of Abraham, an heir of the promises made to Israel. But I am a Christian. Every sermon I preach should be a Christian sermon. If a Jewish person, a Muslim person, or a Hindu person likes my sermon, I did something wrong. Christ is to be exalted in this church all the time and not ambiguously. So the question I must ask if I take this whole Old Testament and undertake to preach a series from it is, hmm, can I do this with legitimacy as a Christian? I saw three ways that this psalm takes us to Jesus. I'm only going to give you one because the time is short. Number one and only. The, ver- the word uh, righteousness in verse 6, the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Only the righteous survive the judgment. The wicked don't. That's what it says. Only the righteous survive in the judgment. The wicked don't. Who is righteous? If I were a person reading this 3,000 years ago, I think I would be asking, uh, is that me? How righteous do you have to be? I'd kind of be shaken. The righteous will stand in the judgment, not the wicked. To make matters worse, Psalm 14 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul quotes that in Romans 3. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And I've got lots of them. You're going to mark them? Says, if you mark them, I'm gone. You're going to mark them? Or you close your eyes, you sweep them under the rug, you... What's my hope? Or Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Doesn't count it. You don't mark it. And the question then is thrust on us. How can you not mark it? How can you not count it? And if you answer, well, we sacrifice bulls and goats. That's how we don't count it. My conscience would say, the blood of an animal for the soul of a man doesn't give me peace. 
I'm going to stand before an infinitely holy God whose standards are infinitely high. I'm going to give an account of my life. How? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5. The goal of the Psalms, the instruction of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. They could see it dimly. A Redeemer was to come. Who would he be? When would he come? What would it be like? And he came. He came and did two massive things. And I'll stop with this. He made plain, God marks iniquity. And God counts sin. And his son bore the marking and he bore the counting for us. We have a substitute for our sin and our iniquity. And the second thing he did was fulfilled all righteousness so that the perfect standards of God stand. And in Jesus Christ, I can be righteous before God and escape the judgment and not be like chaff. One last comment. This is important to notice in the Psalms because in the middle of the night or any other time when you are stretching out your roots into the water of the stream of the word, it better include the gospel. What gave the word life-giving power in the beginning was the gospel. I just read it in Galatians 3 today. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. What gave the word its life-giving power was the gospel. Today we know the cross. Oh, the glory of the cross. So as you are meditating, using words of the Psalms, let them always take you to this stream which runs with the river who is Christ. I am the living water. Make sure your roots always reach Father in heaven, as we spend now these next weeks delighting in your instruction and meditating day and night on your instruction, would you help us as a church? Would you lift the tide of this church? I pray for everyone in the hearing of my voice that the Holy Spirit would come and give them a hunger and a thirst for the marvels of the Psalms. What a gift to the church you have given us. Oh, that we might not neglect it. 
I pray that one of the effects would be that many would memorize Psalm 1 and memorize Psalm 23 and memorize Psalm 16 and memorize Psalm 40 and Psalm 121 and Psalm 130, Lord, and all over the place. May there be a rising tide so that we can live in these psalms and our hearts and our minds would be shaped with God. I ask this in... Jesus' powerful name. Amen.